You're listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, you can find us at faithchurchindy.com. Now here's the teaching. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Joey. If we've never met, um, I guess if we have met, I'm also still um, Pastor Joey. And uh, it's great to be back. I I was gone the last couple of Sundays with a small group of us. We were in Poland doing an evangelistic English basketball camp. I was uh, on the English side of it, not the basketball side of it. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Last Sunday, I got the chance to preach in the church where our missionaries, Jacob and Becca, attend, which was awesome. I got to bring them greetings from Faith Church in Indianapolis. Uh, They asked me to bring greetings to you as well. So formal greetings from uh, Cozio Evangelico Augsbersky Pamietzi Krola Gustava Adolfa. I had to practice that one. It was a lot easier to say greetings from Faith than that. Uh, Being in Poland the last couple of weeks, uh, it kind of made me want to jump on a train and just head over into Ukraine uh, and visit some of our friends since I was like, oh, we're so close. And and really the only reason that I haven't uh, done something like that is, besides it's not very smart, it's that I think I would be probably a burden on our Ukrainian friends given that my Ukrainian goes only so far as ordering coffee. Uh, in the mornings. But I, I, still, we have, we have friends there that, that we would desperately love to encourage. Uh, the last time we've seen them was a, a few years ago, back before COVID, before the war in Ukraine. Uh, there was a small team of us that went to serve and encourage the folks there at Keep Theological Seminary. Uh, if you don't know, Faith Church is a huge part of supporting a couple of departments at KTS, including the church planting department. And while I was there last, I got to have a great conversation with one of the students in the church planning department. Um, He told me about challenges that he was facing planting a church in Belarus, just north of Ukraine, Um, how they have to get a certification from the government if they want to start a church. Um, They have to go through a formal process to get permission if they want to evangelize, Um, otherwise it's illegal. Uh, At the time, Belarus was not allowing any new church buildings to be built. Uh, So if his church that he was planting wanted a building, they had to wait for another church to die in order to move into a building, you know, that was already designated as a church building. Uh, And I checked this morning. It's, It's actually gotten even worse in Belarus since I talked with him four or five years ago. But the fascinating thing about my conversation with this church planner was that he didn't really resent the impositions that the Belarusian government was putting on them. For him, it it was just reality. Uh, He told me, hey, God's called me to plant a church, and he's called me to plant it here. So he's like, I'm not really called to save the soul of my nation. Like, I I got neighbors with souls that I'm worried about. It was fascinating to me as he was going through all of these challenges and then more that he shared at the end. He said uh, to me, he was you know, trying to connect. He's like, but things must be difficult in America too, yes? And I was like, yeah, but not like that. I think if you were to ask me the question today rather than four years ago, I might answer a little bit differently and say, yeah, things are tough in the States as well. Um, But that's because we kind of have an opposite problem. We are maybe a little too tempted to rely on 
the government being a certain way or giving us a certain amount of support uh, in order to do what we want. And maybe a little too tempted to work first at changing our circumstances before we get about the calling of introducing people to Jesus. And part of that's because, you know, we in the states have kind of a different relationship with church and government. We're used to a different level of involvement and decision-making, you know, input into uh, the whole process. Way more than most of the rest of the world experiences, certainly more than most of the world has experienced through most of its history. But it's still true that every generation in the church has had to wrestle with, I mean, just how do we relate to the culture around us? Especially, how do we relate to the governing authorities that are over us in whatever place and time that we find ourselves? I mean, you know as well as I do with the way our, with where our culture is going with political polarization across the spectrum and with political idolatry running rampant in the church. I think it's helpful for us as Christians today to, to see how other Christians at other times and other cultures and places, how they responded to the political situation they found themselves in. It helps us a little bit to maybe realize that I kind of our, our knee-jerk reactions aren't, aren't the only way uh, to relate to governing authorities. Now, Luke doesn't, doesn't include the story we just heard read because he's trying to highlight for us how we're supposed to respond to political pressure or anything like that. He's continuing to tell the story of how the center of gravity of the church is shifting from Jerusalem up towards Antioch and how the old leaders are kind of passing off the scene and new leaders are showing up. But when we read this story in our context and our climate today, it's hard not to see some really striking differences between how the early church approaches political pressure and maybe how we're tempted or how we kind of habitually approach political pressure. So we're going to find as we, as we read through this story, uh, which by the way, is, this is the only story in Acts where Roman authorities use deadly force against the Jewish movement. We're going to find in here though that the early church never really felt this overwhelming urge to pursue political power, certainly not at the expense of its character. Because what we see in the church in these early years is we see a church that, that knows that political animosity is nothing compared to the power of God. And on the other hand, political favor is nothing in comparison with the generosity of God. You could put it another way and, and say, you know, it's wherever you find yourself in whatever time or place, it's never so bad that God can't work. And it's never so good that we don't need him to work. See, it's never so bad that God can't work, and it's never so good that we don't need God to work. So let's jump into the story, and uh, let me show you what I mean. We pick up at chapter 12, verse 1, and Luke introduces it by saying, about that time, and then starts to tell a story about Herod. Uh, another way we might say it is, uh, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, 
Because what Luke's doing in the narrative is he's actually rewinding about five years from the verses immediately preceding it. In verses uh, 27 through 30, at the end of chapter 11, we hear about a famine that's coming, and there's this relief effort that's sent from Antioch down to Jerusalem uh, to help the poor in Jerusalem who are going to be impacted by this famine more than most. Uh, That famine hit Jerusalem around A.D. 46 or 47, And it hit the church hard, but thankfully they were prepared. If you're the kind of person who makes notes in your Bible, you can write like A.D. 46 next to the end of chapter 11. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, write A.D. 41. Uh, We're rewinding in order to uh, figure out, hey, what was, you know, Luke's going to tell us, what was going on in Jerusalem uh, he was p- following the thread of Gentile acceptance of the gospel, but now we've got to rewind and see what was going on back at home base. So we read, you know, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, we pick up the story with King Herod targeting uh, the church or church leaders. Now, this Herod, he came on the scene in A.D. 41 and died by A.D. 44. We're going to talk about that story next week. So there's a really short window uh, in which this situation took place, this story that we're reading. Uh, This guy, this particular Herod, you know, that's a family name. This particular guy is Herod Agrippa. He was already a Roman official when he helped his old schoolmate, uh, Claudius, uh, ascend to the throne of Caesar. And in exchange, he was given an expanded territory to govern, which included Judea. Uh, this guy, this Herod's unique. He's the first Herod who's actually Jewish. And so he's, uh, he's jumping at the opportunity to solidify his power and a pandering to the broader population's growing animosity toward uh, this Jesus movement. So immediately, you know, we're told right away, verse 1, he, he arrests and tries and executes the Apostle James, um, beheading him. And when he sort of gauges the reaction to it, he's like, all right, I got a green light here. He goes on to arrest uh, Peter too, uh, arrests him just before Passover and leaves him languishing in uh, what another historian at the time tells us is a gloomy dungeon. Uh, Leaves him languishing there for about a week until the holidays are over. Then he can parade him out for public trial and execution. Now, maybe Herod is feeling like this early church is a threat to his rule. Maybe he's trying to scatter them again or eliminate some of the leaders and stop the movement. Most likely, he's, he's just using his new power to garner support for himself, killing a few leaders of an unpopular messianic movement is like low-hanging fruit, you know? It's just part of the first 100 days plan. So he plans to uh, bring Peter out and, and try him and execute him, and all of that, these first five verses of chapter 12, is just more or less uh, background information that Luke's giving us so that he can really jump into the story in action. You know, sometimes when we're reading the book of Acts, it feels kind of like a Ken Burns documentary, like here's what happened, and here's what happened, and here's what happened. And then every once in a while, it sort of shifts, and it's like, I feel like we're in a swashbuckling pirate movie now. And this is one of those times where we get to see the action unfold. So the the story starts to pick up in verse 6, on the night before Peter's trial, But we're left at the end of verse 5, wondering what God might do. 
because there's some tension in the way Luke has set up the story for us. At the end of verse 5, we're told the church in Jerusalem is in earnest prayer, continuous, constant prayer for Peter. From their reaction to the story later on, it's obvious they, they weren't really praying for a miracle, or at least weren't expecting prayers for a miracle to be answered. In fact, in Acts, if we read across the whole thing, we don't often see uh, believers praying for deliverance from suffering. We more often see them praying for boldness to face suffering or courage and endurance in the midst of suffering. So Luke doesn't tell us what they were praying, but likely they were praying something similar for Peter. You know, God may have showed up in a miraculous way a decade ago, back in chapter 5, opening prison doors and letting the apostles go. But, but this time, their prayers for James weren't answered. He was an apostle too, and his death, his execution came as kind of a wake-up call, I think. You know, following the Messiah, Jesus doesn't automatically mean you have a miraculous get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not the way it works every time. Jesus suffered and was executed. Following him um, might get you the same fate. So for Peter, I think they're praying for courage. They're praying for boldness. They're praying for a good outcome in the trial that's supposed to take place the next day. They're, they're praying, okay, if, if you find him guilty, just don't, you know, maybe not the death penalty, just uh, some sort of lesser punishment than execution. But I think they're also praying, if this is the end for Peter, Lord, help him to die in a way that honors his, his Lord and his Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. So they're praying earnestly. In the meantime, Peter's asleep. He's chained between two guards, one on each side. There's more guards at each exit to the prison. And this is where Luke picks up the narrative at almost a breathtaking pace. Out of nowhere, an angel shows up, just radiating light. And we wonder immediately, why don't the guards see? No one seems to notice. Uh, maybe the guards are asleep, confident that there's no way Peter can escape. Maybe uh, the angels knock them out somehow. You'd think if they were asleep, the light would wake them up, and yet the light doesn't wake up Peter. The angel literally has to kick him in the side, kind of prod him and, and wake him up, say, Peter, get up. Even then, Peter's only half awake. He's assuming this is all a vision because he's had visions before that felt like reality in which God was showing him something he was supposed to learn from, and at the end of those visions, he'd kind of wake up to reality. So he's just going along with it, thinking this is another one of those revelatory dreams. Maybe God's showing him symbolically how he's going to rescue him the next day. Whatever. Anyway, Peter obeys the angel's orders. Get up, get dressed, put on your shoes, put on your cloak, follow me, stay close. And as he follows the angel, you know, the chains fall off. The guards don't notice them walking by. Doors are opening on their own. The gate out of the prison just opens all by itself. And they walk out of the prison, out onto the city streets. They make it about a block, and then the angel suddenly disappears. 
it's almost comic. In fact, most of this story is told from a sort of a comic perspective. Peter is standing out in the street alone, having just walked out of prison, and he's waiting to wake up. He's like, okay, God, this is normally the part where you start to say something, or I wake up and think about what this means. And he doesn't wake up. He's like, oh, this really happened. I'm outside. Great. And the story could just end right there, except Luke goes on to tell us what Peter does next. As soon as he realizes he's out and is free, he's free, immediately he goes to church. Now, remember, at this early stage in the history of the Jesus movement, followers of Jesus gathered together in homes. They weren't building temples or, or church buildings to gather in yet. That doesn't start to happen for another couple hundred years. So they would gather in, in houses. Uh, if there was somebody with a sufficiently large uh, house, they'd say, hey, y'all can come meet at my place. And then when it got too big for that house, they were like, who else has a house? You've got a house. You're a decent enough teacher. You guys go over there. And that's how the church just kind of grew and expanded. So Peter, when he realizes he's out of prison, he heads straight to, Luke tells us, the house of Mary, where there's a house church gathered in prayer for him. Most scholars agree this is probably the same house church where Peter attended and where he taught when he wasn't in prison. Uh, Mary, we're not told much about her. Evidently, she's a woman of some means, probably widowed and left in charge of quite the estate uh, in a city where space is at a premium and people are just really packed in, her home is described in really lavish ways. Uh, it's not just a door on the street. There's a gateway, right? So picture a city street and an iron gate and a courtyard and then a house and potentially other buildings as well beyond the courtyard. And so Peter's standing outside. Uh, it's getting on towards the early hours of the morning. He's knocking on the gateway probably not too loudly, I would assume. You don't want to clue anyone in that you've just escaped from prison. Uh, but he's there because he knows or uh, assumes that there'd at least be a servant or two awake um, and, and about at the hour. And hearing the knocking, a servant girl named Rhoda is dispatched to the gate to find out who's out there. Uh, Peter, I think, he sees movement and, and calls out, you know, whisper shouting, hey, it's me. It's Peter. And Rhoda immediately recognizes his voice. We can picture her, you know, just a, a step or two outside the door of the house, looking across the courtyard, hearing, seeing Peter and being like, we were just, and immediately turning and going back in and being like, guys, Peter is out here. And instead of telling her, well, let him in, <laughs> they're like, no, you're crazy. Because everyone in that prayer meeting knew that Peter was chained in a dungeon with four squads of soldiers walking him. One does not simply walk out of a dungeon. And if Peter had been released or killed, they, they would have heard about it by now. But she's, she's insistent. She's like, no, I, he really, like he's out there. And so, okay, she's seeing something, but if that's the case, it's probably just Peter's angel. 
We're not entirely sure what Luke means by telling us that, but there was a a belief at the time that uh, every follower of God had a guardian angel, kind of more of a superstition than a belief. Uh, The fun part was they thought that your guardian angel looked just like you. So I feel bad for my guardian angel. Aw, thank you, whoever said that. So like, well, if you're seeing something out there, I mean, it's either his ghost or his angel. Either way, you know, like, keep it down. (laughs) But this particular ghost or guardian angel keeps knocking on the gate and going, it's me, and you got to admire his work effort. He keeps going at it, and and this time, more than just Rhoda go to see who's there. And when they realize it's Peter... Again, it's a comic scene. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed. They're talking over each other. They're asking him questions. And Luke says, Peter has to go, hey, guys, settle down. Like, give me a second. I'll tell you what happened. And he explains, you know, no trial. We didn't have the trial. No, I wasn't set free. No, an angel showed up. Like, look, here's what happened. And, and he tells them the, the whole story. And at the end of his report, he gives them just a, a short command. He says, hey, I need you to Tell all of this, tell it to James, not James the Apostle. He was executed at the beginning of the story. Uh, This is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, Uh, a James who by this point in the story has already come to be a fairly prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. Peter says, look, go tell James what happened because I got to move on. And then he leaves. And Luke doesn't tell us where, either because he doesn't know right away or because that's not really the point of the story. He just says, then Peter departed and went to another place. We know from other sources that Peter and his wife, maybe his family with him, that headed out on an intense period of missionary activity. And as far as the story Luke wants to tell goes, Peter doesn't have a role to play anymore. He's done. He shows up again. He'll pop up in chapter 15 when the church is trying to decide how a a Jewish church and a Gentile church are supposed to relate to one another. He he shows up to help the church realize, hey, we got to open our arms. We are one family here in Jesus. But other than that, Peter's part of the story is over. All we know about him other than his missionary journeys is that at some point down the line, the the miracles stop, and for him, it becomes more important to die well for the name of Jesus than to be rescued in the name of Jesus. It's one of these great stories that Luke includes where we we get to feel like we're really part of the action of what's happening in the moment in the early church, but it's a story that's told in the context of tension. God, you didn't show up for James. Will you show up for Peter? Why didn't you show up for James? And and why did you show up for Peter? And how are we supposed to think about the way we interact with these pressures that are over us and around us, especially uh, political 
pressures. It's a story that's kind of full of this tension of how does the church rely on God when the world around the church is trying to destroy it or kill off its leaders? I said at the beginning of the sermon that it's it's helpful for us to see how Christians in different cultures, different places, different times, like how they respond to pressure from the outside, especially political pressure that's put on them. It helps us see that our natural way of responding maybe isn't the only way for Christians to respond. Because I'm, I'm struck by a, a few things that even as we've just read through this story quickly, a few things that come through in this story of God's miraculous deliverance of Peter. I, I said it multiple times, so I'm sure you notice that, that Peter is rescued, but James isn't. And we want to ask, well, why? Tell us what's going on here, Lord. But he doesn't give us an answer. James was an apostle too. You'd think that would mean something, but we're not given an answer so much as we just see from the story that, yeah, God can rescue, but that doesn't mean he always will. He can. That doesn't mean I can force him to. And that's a challenge for us, or at least for me, because if you're like me, you know, when it looks like God isn't showing up, I tend to naturally assume that, well, I guess that means I'm the one who's supposed to get this done, right? Like God gave me a brain and some muscles, so if he's not going to do the work, I'm supposed to do the work. Rarely do I stop, or I should say it, it takes discipline to stop and be like, wait a second, I know what I want is good, but does that mean it's the right good? Am I going after this a little more quickly, like too quickly to allow God to work how he wants to? Anyone else like that? Yeah. Which, of course, leads me to a second observation from this whole narrative. Do you notice the difference between how Herod exercises power and how the church does? Herod uses arbitrary, violent, self-serving, manipulative, deadly force to get what he wants, to make happen what he wants to happen. And the church prays and submits what it wants to what God wills. See, the church doesn't use any of the tools in Herod's toolbox. They don't hold a conference and decide, okay, I know the way of Jesus is good and all, but you know, what this moment really requires is for us to disregard all that fruit of the Spirit stuff and use brute force and political manipulation. That's how you follow God in times such as these with the threats that we face. The story we're told of this church in their first few years is a church that's convinced that the power of God requested in prayer is greater than the power of Herod, greater than the power of Rome even. And they're convinced that God will do what is good, 
even if it doesn't appear good to them in that moment. Man, what about us? Oh, what about me? I think I could pass the test if I were asked. Okay, what do you, who do you think is more powerful, God or whoever happens to be in charge right now? Well, yeah, I know in my head that God is more powerful, but in my bones, do I know it in my gut? You pass the test, but maybe not when I'm put under pressure. Uh, but this church not ever having been in any position of power. This church knew that political animosity and political pressure is nothing compared to the power of God. And on the flip side, that, that political favor is nothing in comparison to the blessings of God. In other words, I'll say it again, it's never, whatever situation or time or, or, or political situation you find yourself in, it's never so bad that God can't work. And it's never so good that we don't need God to work. Which is why everyone Everywhere in Jerusalem, in Belarus, in Ukraine, in Poland, in the States, everywhere, and no matter what's happening, the church's first calling has always been to pray. Now, I'm not a huge fan of preaching about politics. Probably not any more of a fan than you are of hearing sermons on politics, or that touch on political issues. Uh, it's just, it's painful. We all know preaching about politics tends to surface the reality that for some of us, the gospel is not the thing that unites us. It's a party that takes precedence. But we're, we're entering a season of political life in America where I don't think the church gets to just try to get through election years anymore without really talking about it. Political idolatry is rampant in the church. As, as more and more Christians, understandably, we despair to see what's happening in the country that we love, and so we're more and more susceptible to the temptation to think that God wants us to act more like Herod than like Jesus in order to defend him. In fact, a, a pastor friend told me recently that he sincerely believed that, these are his words, that if America falls to the demon-possessed, liberal, secular, woke Democrats, his words, then the hope of the gospel in the world would be gone. Where America goes... He said, the church in the world goes. And respectfully, vehemently, I disagree. And respectfully, he should know better. He's a pastor. Because if what he said were true, we wouldn't be here. There would be no church in America today. Because all throughout the book of Acts, we see the church coming up against the two dominant power structures of the day, the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman state. And it doesn't matter which one is aligned against them, whether they're cooperating or fighting. It doesn't matter. The church just thrives. 
Every time that someone comes in and, and puts pressure on the church, they're scattered again and the gospel just keeps going. America is not the hope of the world and Jerusalem or any leader, Peter, Herod, president, whatever, is not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel, the hope of the church and the hope of the church in this world is in the Messiah, is in Jesus is not in whatever happens in November, whoever is elected here or whoever is free where. The hope of the gospel is in the power of God to do what he wills, not what we want to have happen. And sometimes God, his will is to miraculously rescue and deliver. And sometimes his will is to miraculously give us courage and endurance for the suffering that we have to face because we're followers of the Messiah, of Jesus. Look, it is never so bad that God can't work. And nothing we do is ever gonna make it good enough that we don't need God to work. So our calling as a church is the same as the church, it's the same calling the church has been called to for 2,000 years in times like these or in whatever times we find ourselves. Our calling is to pray and submit what we want to what God wills. So let's do what the church has to do. And let's pray. Father, we have to come before you and we have to admit that we're, we're humans, we, we, we want comfort, we don't want to be uh, attacked, we don't want to be reviled, we don't want uh, the things that paradoxically you tell us are, are the very soils in which we flourish. We, we come to you and often we pray for you to intervene and for you to work desperately. We want you to because we want you to make this world into the kingdom that you have promised it will be. And Yet at the same time, we have to admit that many of our prayers are conveniently aligned around our own comfort and our own peace and our own security. Father, we admit we don't want to live in a tension of knowing that you can rescue and wondering if you will. So, Father, we pray that you would give us courage and boldness and endurance for the times ahead of us, the times that we're in now, whether they are times of blessing or times of suffering or, as is often the case, times of blessing through suffering. Strengthen us for the task and the calling to which you have called us, Father. That like Peter whether by our life or by our death, we would glorify you and walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.